Welcome to Kogel Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. I'm film critic Gary Kogel, and today a big-budget, get-the-old-gang-together heist movie starring Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, and Ben Affleck. It's another Netflix exclusive with a horrible title. It's called <laughs> Triple Frontier. I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Kogel. This big budget with a solid cast film takes place traveling over the glorious Andes Mountains. Yeah, Andes. Which makes today's show the ideal time to toast the wines of Argentina, even though the film took place in Brazil. Yeah, it's close. But we waited a few weeks to dive into the tasty wines from our recent trip to South America. So I think today's the day. Can't wait to share a few of our favorite experiences. But first, let's talk about this film. We were tuning into Netflix originally to watch the new season of Chef's Table. Yeah, because we're fans of Chef's Table. Absolutely. We've talked about it many times on the show. And um, this popped up instead. I think it had just been released. I kind yeah. of kind of wish we had just gone on to <laughs> Chef's Table. <laughs> but but get, wrap your head around this, and why wouldn't you watch it? Exactly. Okay. I mean, just seeing the cast. Yeah, so it's directed by J.C. Kander. He did a really good film called A Most Violent Year uh, a while back. But it's written by Mark Bowl, and Mark Bowl won the Oscar for writing The Hurt Locker, and then he wrote Zero Dark Thirty, which incredible. is both incredible films. Well, and Catherine Bigelow's the... Catherine Bigelow's director of both of those. And, but I think she's producer on this. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think or she, executive producer. Yeah, she was it, definitely involved. Yeah. And then you do. You see this cast. Yeah, you We see, love Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac is great. Of course, you know, Star Wars, but Ex Machina. He's, uh, yes. There's so many good things here. But also Charlie Hunnam, which we thought was great in The Lost City of Z. Yes. And he was in that kind of good Tarzan movie. You it it wasn't that. awful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Ben Affleck. I mean, come on, Goodwill Hunting and the greatness of Argo. You know, Ben and Affleck kind of reminded me more of his role in what was that bad movie? Geely. <laughs> so in this one, he reminded you of Geely well, less than Argo. Less than Argo. <laughs> the the writing just isn't. Oh, this film's a mess. So, so let me let me set the scene and let's pick this apart. We'll unpack this movie a little bit. There's five former special force operatives. You know, they're soldiers. They take on and they're retired, but they all have their private lives and they're all kind of a mess and they all need money. So they take on a private scheme to rob a drug lord in South America and just keep the money for themselves. So they're not doing anything of a high moral value. They're going to go down and pick off a drug lord, steal millions of dollars, and set themselves up for the rest of their lives. Well, and initially it was that they were being, that Oscar Isaac's character was working for the local um, police force. And so how he pitched it to his ex, you know, operative friends was that the police have hired him to to get this really bad guy and he's a really terrible guy and that's really right. the whole point and then all of these people like finally agree after like dancing around for it's one of those movies where the setup goes on for about 30, oh 30 minutes or so there? can we yeah. just all say yes right now and I mean go? it was it's like these people were trying to be like oceans forty eight in the jungle because yeah. if if George Clooney had led that pack they would have all said yes immediately and like been in the jungle yeah you just show up and they say I'm in and you just say I'm in yeah of course. Ben Affleck's the messy of, messiest okay. of all the characters because he's going, you know, he's divorced, he's got children, he's, he's, he's poor, he's poor, he's just, he just, he's trying to be a real estate agent and he's just terrible because all he can do is be yeah. a special ops man. And he whines a lot. And he whines a lot. And so, of course, this is all about drugs and guns and macho dialogue. It's a film that says to me, why use words when you can use firepower? And they use way too many words. <laughs> 
and they're constantly <laughs> too much firepower. Mu- none of this. This is written by the great Mark Bull, and so to get this green, I mean, sometimes when you write the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, and then you get these guys together, all of a sudden, you know, you're going to go off and make a movie, and if we have problems, we'll try to make it work and work it all out. But it's just the most overwritten, ridiculous. And then the message of the movie is so absurd because it's it's got a high body count. I mean, there's a lot of dead bodies in this. Just a lot of of just ridiculousness in that, and they're all t- that are completely unnecessary. Oh, I and their guns that that, are so important to yeah. them. All their firepower is really, you know, because they're special ops guys, and so and they're they're doing. And the more and more it goes, about halfway through this movie, you start thinking this is a completely. Not not that movies need to be moral, but when it tries to be moral and it's not. That's that's the weird thing because there was this kind of underlying like, you know, we're we're really gonna we're gonna get this bad guy. Oscar Isaac's whole character right. is, you know what, we we don't hurt anybody. We're just out to get this bad guy. But then they're all all they do is They're bad guys. Is yeah, is freely shoot somebody who walks in their way. <laughs> They're just bad guys, and and of course, uh, 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 and it's hard to feel sympathetic towards them. Yeah. You know, it's not a Robin Hood story either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, but it's a really selfish film with a high body count. I just uh, by the end of it, listen, it's I think it's really well made. It's very well directed. It's horribly written. Um, even the setup is bad, um, but shooting on location the way they did in this mm-hmm. film, it, it's watchable. It's mm-hmm. really a watchable film. But if you think at all about what you're seeing and how it just kind of plays out, it's more than just a mindless action film. These are bad guys, and then they set you up for a sequel. Yep. They set you up for a sequel, and Can't you think, wait. I don't, nah, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm out. It's 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that's generous. I think this is a 50% film just because of who's in it Mm -hmm. and they're all good listen Mm -hmm. listen, everybody's good there's a big twist halfway through too there's uh, maybe three-fourths the way through Mm -hmm. and uh but it's it's just i think it's throwaway film Mm -hmm. it's really disappointing because we looked at this one i'm like god mark bull wrote it and it's oscar isaac and these guys so what's this film doing and netflix has been doing these films you know their their own premieres on netflix and 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 some some of them them are very good. good hence roma roma well, Roma being the cream of the crop, yeah. pick of the pack, top of the heap. But uh, and then the, and then the one we kind of liked with Chris Pine, I, I kind of liked that film. The uh, oh yeah, the, the period film, yeah, Last Crusader or yeah. something like that. I wanted to call it a Viking movie, but it's not a Viking movie. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting watching it because you, know, you wonder where's all this money coming. Mm-hmm. This is not a small budget movie, not at all. No, it's got a lot of equipment in, a lot of helicopters in it, and locations, and man. It, but it's not a very good film. So I'm, well, I'm going to leave it at there because we've got some really good things to Let's talk, talk about. Let's talk wine instead. When we come back on Kogel Wine and Film, a perfect pairing, a recent trip to Argentina, yay, has us talking about Malbec and some other wines. It's a wine also Malbec I thought I understood until we landed in Mendoza. <gasps> and I learned a lot. And we will be right back. In our travels, we've had the privilege of tasting some of the most delicious wines from all over the world. And we can tell you that the barrier to drinking most great wine isn't just the price, it's the access. And that's why Wine Access has been a true game changer, making it easy to discover and drink the best wines from all over the world. Okay, I'm going to pick one out. Like the 2015 Clos Saint Anne Premier Cote de Bordeaux. Did I say that right? (laughs) 
Absolutely. I probably overemphasized it. <laughs> it's a right bank Bordeaux, of course, because it's 90% Merlot and 10% Cab, Cab love Franc. Those. Yeah. It's a silky wine of plum fruit. And well, let me explain it black currants and violets and a lot of savory spice. And it's bolstered, I think, by really refined tannins. But I like that it's a silky wine. It's a true, uh, decent Bordeaux. Get this, for only $20 a bottle. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, Wine Access's dedicated team of experts taste over 20,000 bottles every year, offering us access to their favorite gems, exquisite wines, sakes, that we think that they should cost quite a bit more. Yeah, they could. But whether it's grapes from a family vineyard or the passion project of a legendary winemaker, Wine Access shares the full story of what makes each bottle so special. And they deliver both the wine and their story with a great price right to your doorstep. And we want to help you discover some new favorite bottles. So we've arranged this exclusive limited time offer. You've got 20% off these outstanding wines that are already at a great value. But to get this 20% off offer now, you need to go to our special website. That's wineaccess.com slash Cogill. For full details, go now to wineaccess.com slash Cogill. C-O-G-I-L-L. Welcome back to Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Gary and I had the privilege of spending some time recently in Argentina. We talked a little bit about where we stayed a couple weeks ago. But the real joy of this trip for me was visiting multiple wineries, drinking some of the best that Mendoza has to offer, including some old favorites and some really special new finds. I thought it was so special. I learned so much. Uh, Well, first of all, I thought we're only drinking Malbec. But it's silly to think that any wine region in the world you go to, they're only going to make one wine. Mm -hmm. It's like going to Oregon. They just don't make Pinots. Mm -hmm. They make all kinds of other wines. And in Argentina, there's a lot more than just Malbec. Well, I think that there there probably is some confusion. But if you think about where Malbec comes from, it's it's a Bordeaux variety. And so if you think of any Bordeaux wine, you're not just drinking Cabernet. I think right. some there is a misconception. Oh, Bordeaux, that's just Cabernet. But in every Bordeaux wine, there is something else. Every wine is a blend. So that was the revelation for me because I thought everything, all the Malbecs were just, a Malbec was... 100% Malbec. Great. And there certainly are some of those, but what No, I, but the good... Well, what I have always appreciated, I think, about about Argentine wine is that the Malbec usually leads, so the blend yes. usually has predominantly Malbec in it. But the winemakers of Argentina have really mastered the, the craft, I think, of the blend and, and really kind of celebrating and utilizing what um, Mother Nature gives them every year. And so that's also not having to stick to a strict regiment like in Bordeaux, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, if you are right bank, you are this, you know, if you are left bank, you are this. Um, Argentina allows you to have maybe one year it's 50% Malbec and 30% Cab and 20% Petit Bordeaux or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. the blend might be, a little Tanat, a little Bonarda. Um, and then the following year, it could be 70% Malbec. And so there's not really any kind of strict um, designation of what the wine has to be, unless, of course, it says it's 100% Malbec on the, on the bottle. And there are and certainly that, some And that's of those. the revelation for me, that Malbec is a blend, predominantly. Predom- many of them. Many of them are blends and beautiful Bordeaux-style blends. And, and really, really lovely and yeah. silky. And so we actually had the opportunity. Terrazas de los Andes um, is a part of the LVMH group, which is um, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. And they started really before they had even uh, explored California. 
the um, LVMH had gone to Argentina to to try to create a sparkling wine house, and they did. They created um, Chandon Argentina, started making sparkling wines, and then after the success of that, decided to make a still wine um, production as well, which is what Terrazas de los Andes is. Mm-hmm. And and really, it's based in um, Luyon de Coyo. Yeah. And, and that was kind of a nice thing, I think, that we really um, dove into a little bit on this trip was for years, the I think that as people just started under, trying to understand the wines of, of Argentina, it's like, okay, all the wines are just Mendoza. And this is, um, the, uh, Mendoza as a whole is exactly the same. And we know that that can't be true. Not true. I mean, we, we see that in Napa Valley. I mean, how many different little, you know, going across the street from, Oakville into Rutherford, into Yountville, into Calistoga, you know, every single little pocket, even if it's only a mile away from each other or across the street from each other, can be completely different. Yep. And so that was something really nice that I I loved being able to understand how Uco Valley, which is kind of the other big predominant area, and Luchan de Coyo are so very, very different. Yep. Um, but Terrazas de los Andes, based in Luchan de Coyo, um, but making wine from from really throughout the region, and 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 that's another very exciting thing is understanding how the elevation of of the entire region really plays into the finesse, the concentration, the um, the style of of these wines. In in. In American terms, it's high altitude wine. Oh, it's completely. I mean, you are yeah. you're at the base of the of the Andes Mountains. We yeah. talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were kind of discussing just the general um, overview of the trip, um, how high these mountains are, and and then comparing it to where we live now, which you know we have a thirteen thousand foot mountain here on the Big Island of Mauna Kea, and and there are vineyards in this region that hit nine and 10,000 feet. Yeah. My tiny brain doesn't like, how can you grow? <laughs> right. How can you grow grapes at these, at these elevations? But the, what that does is it, it does kind of create a very concentrated wine that maintains its freshness and maintains acidity because it's hot days, but still cool nights that that yeah, elevation that big, huge uh, temperature shift. Temperature shift. What do they call that? Diurnal. Diurnal? Yes. <laughs> do you have to take medicine for that? Maybe. The diurnal um, shift. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's a lot of temperature shifts. Yeah. And we were there in the summer. We were it's there right before, right before harvest started. Yeah, their summers are winter. Um, yeah. And one of the nice things, we tried one of their, we tasted with one of their winemakers trying um, their Las Compuertas, so not Spanish, sorry. Yeah, um, wine that um, was a actual single vineyard, 100% Malbec, mm-hmm. um, but that vineyard was planted in 1929. That was another kind of exciting thing we, we got to try in a few of our different stops um, at Ochoval Ferrer as well. The um, These vineyards that were planted, you know, oh, almost 100 years ago, that are still producing fruit. And the nice thing about many of these vineyards is that it's like, it's, it's fruit from rootstocks that are pre-phylloxera. So that basically means that the phylloxera was a virus that wiped out every vineyard across the entire world, completely destroyed, um, you know, some of the oldest and finest vineyards in Bordeaux and Italy and Spain and America. And, um, 
but the, throughout this region, they have these these very old vineyards that are are still producing fruit from the original cuttings that yeah. were brought from Bordeaux, which is just fascinating. Less fruit, high tent, high intensity. Very, very concentrated, yeah. Yeah. small yield, um, really, really special. Yeah. Which I just, I just found. Fantastic. We also had a chance to visit the kind of sister winery to Trazas de los Andes, which is um, Cheval des Andes that the LVMH group started with Cheval Blanc, um, the, you know, fantastic Bordeaux house, um, that when they kind of saw the success and, and the energy that the wines of Argentina have, Cheval des Andes um, was created as this kind of partnership to to basically see if they could bring a kind of premier Bordeaux wine um, or produce that from from the region. So what surprised me also, as we go from winery to winery, there's a huge French influence and a lot of Frenchmen living there working. There, there are. I mean, we we start if you think about. Just like America, just like any any area that kind of has has seen any kind of immigration, the a lot of French, and I think that's kind of how the first part of our trip definitely started. But the Spanish and the Italians um, immigrated many because they they wanted a new adventure, but also many just because they were trying to seek kind of a better a better way of life yeah, and a better life for themselves a better life and for they themselves to make and their wine. families and maybe because of you know class systems where mm-hmm. they came from they they were always going to be a vineyard worker and now they were in a new place and they had the opportunity to actually create something on their own and build yeah. their own wines and um we saw that the the Warpe wines that's the that made the gorgeous Guayquil um blend we had, I think, one of the last nights we were there. Um, the there are two brothers that started Warpe that are great grandsons, grandsons of um, an Italian immigrant yep. that basically came and and really was a pioneer for for growing grapes in Argentina. And and their whole goal is to continue kind of his legacy of of creating really really special wines that that tell the story of this very yep. very unique place. And and that to yeah. me is very fascinating. I thought the we tried several different vintages of the Cheval de Sandis that I just loved. Really, it was interesting to see how wines will both age, as well as I think that Cheval Blanc has kind of taken a more in depth step in working with the winery the last couple of years. Um, and and with that, um, I think you're seeing a little bit maybe. I don't know if the necessarily better, but um, maybe a little bit more refinement yeah. in their wines now um, that I found really fascinating and interesting. What do you think? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, every every tasting and from the get go, it was like I've this is not what I thought Malbec was, and this is not what I thought, you know, and 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 as you said, the Spanish and the French influence and 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 people coming from Italy, but I I just thought it was. There were so many layers of subtle tastings in all of these wines, and and even the bubblies that we've had. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I was kind of overwhelmed by it because I mm-hmm. thought they were so much better than I ever thought they would be. Oh, 
Yeah. yeah. So now I'm a fan for life. Yeah. I'll look on a menu well, now. And I think there is also a, a misconception when I had a friend years ago that all they did was import uh, Argentine wine. And, and he had a, a tough business because at the time everyone said, why in the world would I pay $50 for a Malbec from Argentina? You can, you know, that's like $10 wine. Right. Nobody's going to pay that kind of money. And then we go to... Archival Ferrer that are they're making these gorgeous single vineyard yeah. Malbec based wines from 110 year old vineyards that have such finesse and such elegance and such you know definite definitely robust character but with with real refinement and that's a hundred dollar bottle of wine the Finca Bella Vista from from Archival Ferrer I want to say it's a hundred and ten hundred and twenty dollar bottle of wine and I completely understand the Vina Cabos wines the, the Paul Hobbs uh, kind of helped through the years, um, has worked with with wineries in Argentina, worked with Catena, which is obviously a very big one and kind of one of the best known from Argentina. But he started his Vinacabos winery a handful of years ago. And I'm going to say those wines, Mm -hmm. that might have, those might have been some of my favorite wines I've ever had anywhere. They're not inexpensive. They're $125 bottles of wine. But even the Bramari, um, instead of just he has a, a couple different um, different lines within Vina Cobos and the Bramari is kind of the middle tier. I think they're maybe fifty dollars bottles of wine, and I would be thrilled to pay fifty dollars for any of those wines. You know, somebody asked me the other day about what it's like to travel with you, and and I said, oh, I just hang on for dear life. It's awesome <laughs> uh, because you just never know what they're going to open. Yeah, and and you know, and, there, and there's kind of a system of pouring wines most of the time they'll start with their more uh, lower-priced wines or more accessible. Yeah. Appro- it's called approachable. And then, they, and then they lead up to the, 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 big, the big bad big ones shebang, at the end. Yeah. Most of the time, not all the time, yeah. but most of the time they do that. But all of these were like, I had to really, really think and concentrate hard on when you get into the mid-level of all mm-hmm. of these, especially if you're tasting eight or ten bottles. Of the differences and the nuances, and I know you have a better sniffer than I do. Well, and I they do. are. That's the do. beauty of it. And nuances, but they're different. Is a really perfect world because there there are su- there's such a a ref- there's such a an elegant touch that comes through in in these wines, and I think it's because they are tannic wines. They are big wines, but the freshness that you find thanks to that elevation really really makes everything meld so beautifully we had one last night that was just so smooth mm-hmm. so lush velvety and really allow the flavors of malbec like the morello cherry and you know dark chocolate and licorice and earthiness and wild herb and then really further understanding the differences between um you know the more southern wines of uco valley um because those are going to be cooler climate, which, again, you have to think southern versus northern hemisphere and just wrapping your head around that. Because usually when you go south and, you know, I think it's going to be hotter, but all of a sudden you're in a whole different part of the world. You know, uh, drinking that Archival Ferrer, did mm-hmm. I say it right? Yeah. You know, and drinking the Hobbs, the Vino Cobos. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. They're, they're all completely different, mm-hmm. too. They're all completely different. Whether And I wasn't aware of all those price differences yeah. until I'm hearing you right now. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of those at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. But found those all just fascinating. But then the, um, 
There was a winemaker, Jose Hernandez Tosa. That's what the the Warpe wines that we yeah that I was yes. just talking about. Um, How fun is that? We I think because we that just kind of was the nice little waiter to wrap up the the trip is that the last few days, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we stayed at at the Cavas Wine Lodge, one of my favorite places in the entire world, and just kind of chilled. And so then we kind of dug into their wine cellar and just you know enjoyed this bottle or that bottle at dinner or at lunch and you know the the old favorites like any wine that walter brescia ever makes with his bodega Mm -hmm. brescia i will i will jump at the chance to drink because i adore him and will always love those wines so just having the opportunity to do that because we can't find them sadly here on this beautiful island Um, but then also finding new new discoveries like the Mendel wines. I thought that those were were so lovely and and luscious and and also different varieties. You know, we know Malbec that's kind of always been at the forefront, but um, whites, how I remember it, especially from my last trip to to Argentina, was it's like okay, they make Torontas. They make Malbec. Yeah. There's some other things like Torontos these is other. White. Torontos is the white wine. Malbec's the red. This is what we do. There's some other things like there's some Sauvignon Blanc and some Chardonnay, but there, I don't know. There's a lot more Sauvignon there's Blanc. So, well, I think just the um, the understanding of how to make really nice Sauvignon Blanc. We had a beautiful one from Terrazas, um, as well as a Chardonnay that I was just completely over the moon for. Um, but also, you know, Chenin Blanc. We mm-hmm. had uh, a Las Perdices Albarino. We had the lovely Simeon from um, Mendel. Really diverse kind of selection. So just to see kind of the exploration and and then um, kind of the ability to to make some some other varieties. And then you know things like Bonarda, which is a very um, kind of robust um, grape. It's a, another word for it is Charbonneau that we talked about. Bonarda was a new one for me. And it's um, and Tanat Tanat such a big bold kind of tannic tannic wine. Uh, but use it but sparingly. Can be, in a blend, but can right? be exactly made really. Uh, it, it, done really well if it has a the you know at the hand of a skilled winemaker it's like putting a little bit of hot sauce in the right drink absolutely if it's a bloody it mary pulls, pulls that <laughs> pulls that. and the last thing uh the aging of the wine was interesting to me because i once again i was kind of naive about malbec wines and then to learn that they're blends and that these blends are a lot of are aged like bordeaux before they ever even For the, sell them yeah I think that that's a nice thing. That always thing. tells me something, too, when they do that. Well, I, I think that the whole, for from a, a consumer's point of view, when, when somebody's trying to market a bottle of wine to a consumer, I think the marketers have finally started realizing that when somebody buys a bottle of wine, they're going to drink it that night. Mm-hmm. If they don't drink it that night, they're probably going to drink it that week. And so the the concept of, of people having big sellers, even though we do and love them and, and certainly know a lot of homes in Dallas that have incredible mm-hmm. sellers, um, really all over the world, uh, the most likely the average consumer is not going to go out and hold, you know, buy a case of wine and then drink a bottle and then mm-hmm. six years later drink a bottle. They're going to drink what they buy that night. And so the idea of holding wine in the winery, whether it be 
while aging in a barrel, whether it be aging it in a bottle, which we do see a lot of wines that go through a period of barrel aging and then a period of bottle aging and then um, being released so that when the wine is released, it's at its perfect time. It's ready to go. Time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if so it's you're been, ready to drink it. If it's been in a barrel for 24 months and then a bottle for another eight months yeah. or six months or a year, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I kind of like it that. Okay. Hey, good trip! It was awesome. It was the wines were yeah. the wines were really special. We're gonna um, so through uh, my what to drink now um, kind of column on D Magazine. I'm gonna have several different stories about all of these wines. I've got one kind of focused on the French starting um, starting out, and then we'll go through some of the kind of just different influence of Italy and Spain and and America and all yeah. these great Americans that have gone gone down there and and really I think are kind of changing the way that. That you know how they make wine. Mm-hmm. These, I mean, like Paul Hobbs, but also um, Ravana has a, a Napa Valley producer. Um, Ravana has a property there. Uh, the the owner of Blackbird has a property there, and Napa Valley has a property in in Argentina. So some of these kind of the the classic kind of old Napa Valley winemakers are have have kind of stepped into how to wine of Argentina and, and to see the influence that just the, the terroir of Argentina has given to the wines is really exciting. I can't wait to go back. Yeah. Yeah, it works for me. Next time on Kogel Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, more films and television shows worthy of attention, including at some point we're going to talk about Us, the latest from director Jordan Peele, and I'm terrified to watch this. <laughs> I'm scared just thinking about going. For more on our discussion today, please follow our blog on CogillConsulting.com or through Facebook. Follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill. And to see what we're drinking now, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And with that, I'm Gary Cogill, and I'm always looking for the next great film. I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Join us next time on Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Aloha.